The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. The word of God speaks to us. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person, from among you. This is God's word to us. Hey guys, good morning. If, uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Josh Curry, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, on the way in today, I started laughing, I actually laughed out loud, remembering a buddy of mine who was preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians in his church. And uh, he was assigned this text on Mother's Day. And, and then I walked through the doors this morning and realized that we were having baby dedication and it wasn't so funny to me anymore. <laughs> so so we, we really do believe that God's word is living and active. Uh, our basic practice as a church is to preach through entire books of the Bible, believing that what we need today and what we need always is not another hot take from a person, but we need to hear the very word of God. And so I'm gonna pray for you, ask you to pray for me and we're gonna dive in. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you that your love and your holiness are not at odds. And I thank you that grace and holiness are not at odds. And I pray today that you would meet us and shape us and that you would form Christ in us. God, we confess that uh, even though sin is truly joy, suicide, we, we all go astray. We pray that in your mercy and grace today that you would help us again to return and receive new mercy today from the very presence of Jesus. So help us, we need you. Holy Spirit, come be our teacher. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, so here's what we're gonna do as we walk through this text today. I wanna do two things. The first thing I wanna do is give you a really straightforward explanation of what Paul says. Uh, with very little application, I just want us to walk through this passage a few verses at a time and talk about what it means and what it does not mean. 
And then secondly, at the end today, we're gonna save most of our application and we're gonna talk about our response. What does faithful response to God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter five look like for us individually and what does it look like for us as a church? So take your Bible, open up 1 Corinthians chapter five, starting in verse one, Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul is addressing two simultaneous disasters in the Corinthian church. The first disaster is an individual disaster. There's a man that claims to be a Christian that is involved in an ongoing unrepentant sexual relationship with his stepmother. The second disaster, which seems to grieve Paul as much, if not more than the first, is the corporate response to this man's sin. Paul says that they've responded in arrogance instead of mourning. And the nature of their arrogance is likely found in them seeing this man's sin as an expression of freedom in Christ and their response of tolerance towards this man's sin as an expression of maturity in Christ. And Paul is upset because both of those things are diametrically opposed to the grace of God in the gospel. The Corinthians are arrogantly boasting with the kind of boast that Paul addresses in Romans chapter six, where he writes, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? For the Corinthians, the answer to that question is yes. They think that grace is the empowerment to continue in sin instead of the mercy of God to repent and war against sin. Pick up again in verse three. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul the apostle has already in prayer pronounced judgment on the man that's unrepentantly living in sin, and he now calls the Corinthians to respond to the judgment that he's already made by delivering this man to Satan. What on earth does he mean? Well, Paul is not referring to a black magic incantation. This is not a reference to a prequel to Cliff Barker's uh, Hellraiser, Clive Barker's Hellraiser. This is Paul, this is Paul giving us a deeper understanding of what the church is. And what the church is, is the people of God, under the authority of God. This makes a lot more sense when you understand the essence of the world and the church. In 1 John chapter two, John the Beloved wrote this, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What Paul is saying as he instructs the Corinthians to hand this man over to Satan is not that they're to have a direct dealing with the devil, they're not to talk to the devil or pray to the devil, certainly. What Paul is saying is that as they remove this man from the church, they're removing him from the sphere of those that delight in the rule of Jesus, and they're, they're sending him back into the world that is the sphere of the evil one, the place that lies under the domain of the devil. And this is especially clear in verse 13 when Paul writes, 
purge the evil person from among you. Now pick up again in verse six. He continues, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, this is really fascinating. Uh, Lest we think that Paul the apostle of grace is now preaching a message of works in which this man and the Corinthians need to atone for their own sin or earn the favor of God, Paul does something that's really important. It's fascinating and it's helpful. Instead of zooming in to the particulars of this man's sin, Paul zooms out and he reminds the Corinthians of God's great work of redemption in the Old Testament. The most definitive moment of rescue in the Old Testament, one that we actually sang about today as we, saw, as we sung the words uh, referencing the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, is a moment in which after 430 years in slavery, God moved to redeem and rescue his children in Egypt And as he did so, he ordered all the families of Israel to take a spotless lamb, to take a lamb without blemish, and they were to sacrifice that lamb without blemish, and they were to take the blood of that lamb, and they were to cover their doorways with the blood of the lamb. And as they covered their doorways with the blood of the lamb, the judgment of God that was coming against Egypt would pass over the children of Israel. He wouldn't hold their trespasses against them, but he would move to rescue them and to deliver them from bondage and evil. And what Paul is saying that's amazing is our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He's the perfect lamb without spot or blemish, And in Jesus willingly going to the cross and bearing our sin and dying for us, the blood of Jesus covers all those that will trust in Jesus, that will surrender to Jesus and the judgment that we deserved, the wrath that we deserved, the punishment that we have coming to us, the justice of God that hangs heavy on our shoulders passes over us through the blood of the lamb. We receive not what we deserve, but we receive what Jesus deserves. That's the scandal of grace. And what Paul is saying is in light of the finished work of Jesus, the Corinthians are now to behave differently, make no mistake, but their behavior is connected to what God's already done in Jesus. Paul says you actually are unleavened. And he uses leaven as a metaphor for sin. That just as leaven mixes with the dough and spreads, Paul's concern is that sin would not be allowed to spread rampantly throughout the church, defiling many. So Paul is saying in essence, hey, remember your identity as the people of God and act from your identity. Live in light of your identity. Live towards who you already are in Jesus. He then goes on to say this, In verse nine, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Uh, This can be a bit confusing because we don't have the letter that Paul's referencing. First Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul wrote the church at Corinth. 
And in a previous letter, Paul had addressed their association with the sexually immoral. And they had misunderstood Paul, and and perhaps even they had purposely misunderstood Paul, to think that what Paul meant is that they were not to have relationship with non-Christians out in the world who were sexually immoral. And obviously, in a city like Corinth that was so full of rampant sexual immorality, that was a physical impossibility. And so they received that instruction as a pass. They closed up their ears to the application that Paul was actually driving at. And so Paul clarifies in verse 10. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But listen to what he says. This is about judging rightly in the church. I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you. Okay, I want to give you three things. Three things. If we're going to stand under God's word as good and helpful, if we're going to receive God's word for what it really is, truth and reality, how do we respond to a hard text like that? How do we deal with the demand in scripture to practice what's been called historically church discipline? What's our posture towards sin and towards our own failings and the failings of others? What's the difference between repentant sin and unrepentant sin? How do we avoid the pitfalls and the traps of either becoming a sin-obsessed people that are constantly scrutinizing one another in ways that start to reflect that of the Pharisees, and how do we avoid the equally destructive trap of thinking that the grace of God is licensed to keep on sinning that grace may abound? What do we do with this? Let me give you three things I want you to think about. Number one, mourning, not arrogance, is the right re- response to sin. Mourning, not arrogance. Mourning, not arrogance. And this is really hard for us to hear. Um, in, in our culture, even the word sin is kind of laughable. It's a joke. And Over the course of the last probably 30, 40 years, there have been many teachers and many churches that erred in the side of a graceless fundamentalism, and not all of fundamentalism is bad, like believing God's word is authoritative is actually a really good and beautiful thing, but many of us in this part of the world in particularly have been shaped by churches that didn't seem to preach the grace of God very clearly. And so we kind of hear the word sin and our first inclination is to snicker as if it wasn't something that mattered. Francis Spufford is a British author and he sort of nails the cultural moment that we're in, the mood that we have towards sin. I wanna read you just a couple of paragraphs. He writes, case in point, the word sin. That well-known contemporary brand name for ice cream and high-end chocolate truffles, and lingerie in which the color red predominates. There's a brand management agency in Australia called Sin. There's a fish restaurant in Lima, Peru, called Los Pascadores Capitales, which is a Spanish-language pun on the similarity between the word for sinning and fishing. An English equivalent would be the seven deadly fins. Taxes on cigarettes and booze are sin taxes. 
Sin City in Frank Miller's comic book and the movie adaptation is a locale where the population are entirely occupied in lap dancing and violence. Keep piling up the examples and a picture emerges. It isn't tidy, this definition by use, but the cloud of meaning clearly has a light end, truffles, and a noir end, Frank Miller, but it's entirely comprehensible all the same. He goes on to write this. Everybody knows then that sin basically means indulgence or enjoyable naughtiness. If you were worried, you'd use a different word or phrase. You'd talk about eating disorders or addiction. You'd go to another vocabulary cloud altogether. The result is that when you come across someone trying to use sin in the old sense, you may know perfectly well in theory what they mean is something that isn't particularly chocolatey, and yet the modern mood music of the word is so inconsistent that it's hard to hear anything except an invocation of a trivially naughty pleasure. Okay, now listen, it's fascinating the word that Paul uses that should characterize the church's response to sin. He says, shouldn't you rather mourn? And I just want you to think about the word mourning and the times in your life that you've been struck by grief. This last week was a week of mourning for me and my friends and my family. Um, I was in Iowa for the funeral of one of my dear friend's wives who died in her mid-40s. And we grieved, we mourned. Later in the week on Thursday, I helped officiate my beloved brother-in-law's funeral. He was a man in his mid-60s, beloved, precious, loved Jesus, loved his kids, loved his grandchild, an amazing man that got cut down by cancer in the years of life where he had so much to offer us. And listen, in the midst of those losses, in the midst of what was beautiful being taken away, in the midst of how sad, tragic, and ridiculous death is, we mourned. And anybody in the room that didn't have the capacity of mourning wouldn't be able to step into the moment with the right, appropriate response to something that is that tragic. And what Paul is saying is that, hey, when we see sin in ourselves, and when we see sin in one another, the initial response shouldn't be arrogance of the kind that justifies it or arrogance in the kind that points our fingers at others without doing the hard work of repenting ourselves, but our first response when we see sin should be grief. That sin actually, according to a biblical cosmology, like sin is what entered into the world through our disobedience and it has broken and marred everything. It takes what's beautiful and it makes it ugly. It takes what's precious and pure and defiles it. It brings death and decay and destruction. It fractures relationships. It breaks what we're trying to build. Sin destroys. And this can still seem a bit ethereal until we stand under the cross of Jesus and we see the ultimate cost of sin the one that knew no sin becoming sin for our sake, the most beautiful one that's ever lived, the most holy, pure human being that's ever walked the face of the planet, God in the flesh, the one who loved and gave and served and worshiped and obeyed. At the foot of the cross, we see sin as he took 
our lust and our hatred and our resentment and our greed and our violence and murder on himself, and as he was marred and crushed under the weight of our sin, what we see is that God paid an infinite price in sending his son, and that's how serious sin is that we couldn't deal with it on our own. We couldn't escape it on our own. And we all were heading down the road towards ultimate and deserved judgment and destruction because sin is that real, it's that ugly, it's that serious. And so Paul writes, ought you not mourn? My prayer for our church is that, uh, that when we see sin in ourselves, the only logical, sane response would be mourning. Mourning, grief, tears. And, and not mourning away from the presence of God because that's not the gospel. But when we see sin in ourselves, we come towards God with it. He already sees it. He knows it. We're naked and bare before him. We can't play games with him. And so we're invited in the midst of those moments of conviction, of self-realization, when we hold up God's word and what we see in the mirror is the ugliness of our sin, which happens again and again and again. We're invited to tears. We're invited to the seriousness of it. Number two, number two, what do we do with this text? Well, the second thing we need to realize is that the church is called to pursue holiness together, together. And the Corinthians were sort of they were sort of like, uh, like proto-individualists. They were individualists before individualism was so Zoolander hot. Um, here's what we see in the Corinthians. They're all about claiming my freedom as an excuse to disobey Jesus and the apostles. They were all about claiming my rights and they used their rights as an excuse to sue other Christians. We'll get to that next week. They were all about my gifts, acting as if spiritual gifts were a status symbol instead of a means of serving and helping one another. And in the midst of all that, Paul writes them to correct their thinking and to invite them to see themselves as people who together must pursue holiness. That you really are an unleavened loaf. That's not an individual writing, that's a corporate writing. Paul is reminding them of what he said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter two. The church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ, set apart, made holy by the grace of God in Jesus. And then he tells them, called to be saints together. He says, here's who you are, sanctified, forgiven, cleansed, made holy by God's grace in Jesus. And now you're called together to stir each other towards loving good deeds that Christ would be formed in you, that you could become more fully who God has declared you to be. So what I want to do is take a moment and camp out here and talk about an incredibly unpopular topic, the topic of church discipline. This is the most definitive chapter in the Bible on the practice of church discipline. And where church discipline usually goes wrong, and, and by the way, it can go wrong in a thousand different ways, but where church discipline goes the most tragically wrong is when church discipline that is corrective is divorced from the ongoing, everyday, formative discipline of the church. There is formative discipline in the church and there is corrective discipline in the church. And the formative discipline of the church is to create the very atmosphere that we live in together that helps shape us and grow us to be a people of holiness. 
And if we don't have an ongoing atmosphere or culture of formative discipline, when those rare moments of formal church discipline that's corrective happen, it doesn't do any good. So let let me try to unpack this for you. We are constantly through relationship and worship and prayer and community and the Lord's Supper and Bible study and preaching and teaching and honesty in our small groups as we scatter throughout the city in friendships, as we gather on Sunday morning, all of these are places where we're invited to receive God's word and God's presence together to be shaped and formed to look more like Jesus. It's to be the very culture of our church. It's why we have groups. It's why we gather that Christ Jesus would be formed inside of us. So let's talk about corrective discipline. What does corrective discipline mean and why does it matter? Corrective discipline in some ways happens in formative discipline all the time. It happens every time throughout the last 24, almost 25 years that my wife has said, hey, what you said yesterday hurt me. It, it, happens, it happens as friends sit down over coffee and say, hey man, I'm, I'm concerned about you. I'm seeing some fruit in your life that doesn't look like Jesus. Can we talk about it? That's happening all the time, but there are cases in the life of the church, and this is what Paul is addressing in chapter five. There are cases in the life of the church where formal corrective church discipline is needed that is the removal of someone from the Lord's Supper or removal of someone from the church. And I wanna say two things about motivation before I give you some qualifications. Motivation number one is always love, aiming at restoration and salvation for the individual that's been removed. It must be love. Revenge, payback, punishment, and unbridled anger in response to someone's sin can never accomplish the heart of church discipline which is the saving of someone's soul, that they would repent and turn to Jesus. The second motivation, which is also important, is not just love for the individual, but it's the integrity of the church's witness to the world. That there's places where, there's places where sin has become so unrepentant and egregious that for a person to claim to be a brother or sister in Christ brings reproach on the gospel of Jesus. And so those two motivations lead to a serious and humble response to some cases of sin and disobedience that include a formal removal from the church. And I wanna give you three categories, three categories that are really important. When might a person's sin rise to the case of a 1 Corinthians 5 being put outside the church? When might that be the appropriate response? There's three categories and all three must be met. And I'm gonna use these categories with some fear and trembling around the first two because they both need nuance. The first is formal church discipline is reserved for serious sin, serious sin. And I use that word with fear and trembling because of course all sin is serious. All sin is destructive, all sin is against God's word, all sin hurts us and all sin hurts those around us. But when I use the term serious and a term that's been used throughout church history to describe some cases of sin that demand church discipline, we're talking about the kind of sin that's not just 
damaging for your soul, but that's starting to affect the integrity of the church and others. See, a moment of sinful anger towards your wife is not the same thing as punching your wife in the face. And and it's been popular, especially around uh, Southern Baptist circles, of which we're in, to sort of glibly say, hey, all sin's the same. And I get what they're trying to aim at. They're trying to make it really clear, make it really clear that all people are sinners by nature and choice, and that's good, right, and important. But there is a difference in consequence and severity in a word spoken rashly to your wife and putting hands on your wife. There's a difference. There's a difference between a lustful thought at the grocery store and shattering a marriage and a family with adultery. There's a difference in a careless lie spoken to save face, a sin, make no mistake, but a different kind of sin and a different category of sin than building an entire false resume to manipulate and trick people around you for a decade. There's a difference. And what I want you to see is that formal church discipline is not about us being sort of Wild West gunslingers trying to point out every sin and trying to drive everybody out of the church or carelessly and foolishly thinking that sinless perfection is possible in this life because it's not. It's not. Till the day we see Jesus face to face, we're all gonna struggle with sin. All Christians are sinners by nature and choice and we sin. But I think a helpful distinction is thinking about seeds and then the trees and the fruit of those seeds. We all have the seeds of sin inside of us. We all struggle with pride, we all struggle with lust and greed and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. It's part of our sinful human condition for which Jesus died for us on the cross. But there are sins that without repentance and without putting those fleshly deeds to to death start to grow into trees. And sometimes the fruit of those trees is so damaging to the community around that person, so hurtful and destructive, that church discipline is the only loving, faithful response to remove those people from the church in hopes that they would repent and come back to Jesus. Second category, serious, number two, second category is outward, outward. A person is not removed from the church because we have a hunch that they're prideful. Thank God. (laughs) Formal church discipline demands evidence and witnesses, not hunches. This is the biblical principle of witnesses that some of our entire legal processes in America have been built upon. We We don't assume people are guilty, we assume people are innocent. And that's a good thing. That's a biblical principle of justice. But there are moments, there are moments, and this was such a case in 1 Corinthians chapter five, where a person's sin that is serious and destructive is not based on rumor, hearsay, or a hunch. People knew that this man was living in ongoing unrepentant sexual sin with his stepmother. The Corinthians knew it, Paul knew it, the people that reported to Paul knew it, and even the city of Corinth knew it. It was outward. And by far the most important category of when sin might result in formal church discipline, the most important category, and I hope everybody pauses here and does your own work here, is the category of unrepentant, unrepentant. We are all sinful people. 
If we weren't, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for us. We all struggle with sin. We all fail and blow it. Unless you take a really long nap this afternoon, you're gonna sin multiple times before dinner. <laughs> In our confession and assurance today, we, can, we confess really helpful categories of sin. God, we've sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. We've sinned with omission, the things that we were supposed to do and we didn't do, and we sin with commission, the things that we're not to do that break God's law that we do anyways. So when we talk about formal church discipline, we're not talking about a person that is repenting of sin and fighting sin and still struggling and often failing. We're talking about a person that does not show the fruit of repentance that doesn't take their sin seriously. This was the case of this man in 1 Corinthians chapter five, and we know that because if this man was repentant, Paul would have responded to this man like he did to another person with another situation of church discipline in 2 Corinthians. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter two. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him lest he would be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This man's primary, the primary condition warranting formal church discipline, removal from the Lord's Supper, removal from the church, being put back into the domain of darkness in the world is that it's unrepentant, serious, and outward sin. Before we go to the last one today, man, my prayer is that every week God would meet us with fresh grace to repent, that he would help us to take sin seriously. I, I know so many men in this church that are good husbands and dads, and I know every one of you, no matter how you're wired, no matter how you're built physically, I know that there's not a good man in this church that if a murderer broke into your home in the middle of the night, that would kick your wife out of bed and tell her to go deal with it. And you could call that a sexist statement if you want, if you want but it's just the reality of what a man's called to do for his family. If someone's gonna get killed in your house, it, it's, should be the husband. <laughs> and what Paul's getting at here is that that kind of seriousness about that kind of intrusion into your home and that kind of threat to your family, that's how we should respond to our sin. Serious. Because it's trying to kill you. Last thing, quickly. And, and this is gonna be controversial, but we need to hear this, so just bear with me for like three more minutes. The church needs mature and godly judgment. <laughs> a few minutes on a defensive judgment. The most popular verse in the Bible for many decades was for God so loved the world. The most popular verse in the Bible now is judge not lest you be judged. And make no mistake, Jesus said that, and it's true, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's right, and it's instructive. It's also a verse that we have no idea what the meaning of it is. Because the Bible commands us to make judgments. It commands the church to make judgments. And even the saying, God alone can judge me, is absolutely a fallacy on every level. We are called to make godly, mature judgments all the time. 
In the same chapter in which Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, he warns Christians to beware of false prophets. You will recognize them by their fruit. He's telling them to judge the fruit of those that come to the church. Paul is gonna tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter five that it is those inside the church that you're to judge. God judges those outside. Now what Jesus is getting at, we don't have time to go into all the details, Jesus is addressing the kind of religious, pharisaical judgmentalism that's so disgusting, that's a belittling of our own sins while we attack other people, that's having our own sort of religious internal sins that we cultivate while we point out everybody else's external infractions. And that's demonic and it's worldly and it's gross. But listen, without growing in maturity, without having our noses in God's word, we're gonna lack the discernment that we need to make judgment calls all the time. We need to be people in the world that are as innocent as doves and as wise as serpents. That requires maturity of judgment. And my prayer for our church is that we would be the most welcoming, hospitable church that we could possibly be by the grace of God. And that we would be the kind of people that know how to execute godly, mature, and measured judgments when those judgments are required to fight for someone's soul and to fight for the health of our church. And it's interesting. It's interesting how many times churches get this backwards that Paul says, hey, God's the one that's gonna judge non-Christians in the world. You guys need to make judgment calls in the church. And we flip that upside down, don't we? The church is great at judging the world as if that was our territory. And we're really bad at helping each other to face sin and repent. And Paul calls us to do the opposite of that, to leave judgment of the world up to God and for us in maturity together as the people of God to make good, wise, godly judgment calls. So today as we close, uh, I wanna pray for you. I want you to pray for me. I wanna pray that we would respond to sin in ourselves with mourning, but also with the joy of God's grace as we turn to Jesus again. And I wanna pray that God would cultivate in our church the wisdom needed to navigate what it is to be a community called to bear witness in Oklahoma City. So we you bow your heads and pray with me? Hey, Father, we, we confess that many times, many times, the church has failed to execute church judgment, or church discipline in a way that is restorative. And the church has failed many times to practice any church discipline at all. And we confess to you, Father, that uh, we're all prone to see sin in ourselves and to not mourn. We ask that you would help us to take it seriously. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would fill us today with fresh grace and delight in you. And uh, we confess today that your ways and your law is beautiful and good. And sin just leads to us drinking out of dirty, filthy wells. So would you help us to fight against our flesh? Would you help us to fight for one another? And would you help us, even as we come to this supper, to receive fresh grace today? In Jesus' name, amen.